know, we're talking about life, and, and life happens seemingly in stories. And so for these students, their story is still unfolding. And as we come to the text this morning, we're going to see a new story beginning. Um, and I, I don't know how many of you, are, David, is, David has talked about this when he's preached. Are there any of you who like to read the end of books first? I'm not that guy at all. Like, I like to be surprised. And, and that's not even true. I, I really like to figure it out. You can ask my wife. When we're watching movies, I, I take great pride in figuring it out and then spoiling it for anyone else who's th- like, it was that guy, you know, he's, he, he's really dead. Um, I won't tell you which movie that is. Um, but, but it's really cool when you see a movie or you read a book and the whole time you're reading it, you don't know what's going on. Um, and then at the end, you, you find out the truth of the situation. Um, that's fun, but what's even more fun for me is when I've done that, to go back and re-watch the movie. And so, for example, uh, The Sixth Sense, um, which I just made myself a liar. Um, the Sixth Sense, when I saw that movie the first time, I thought it was incredible. But then, once I knew the twist, once I knew what happened at the end, I got to re-watch the movie. And it was really interesting, when you re-watch it in knowledge of all the facts, things that seemed really important, they don't seem quite as important. And, and things that seemed kind of minor, just details, all of a sudden you realize, oh no, that was really big. That was really important. Uh, we, we have the benefit then of looking at it in full knowledge. And so as we approach this final saga in Genesis, uh, the Joseph saga, we have the advantage of doing that. Uh, We have the advantage, for most of us, this is not new. Most of us know the story of Joseph. And if you don't, well, you're going to get a pretty good spoiler here, um, because this is going to, we're going to look at the end first. We're going to start with the end in mind. And, And I would submit to you that that's what we've been doing throughout Genesis anyway. We've been starting with the end in mind. Jesus is, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so as you read Genesis in light of Jesus, you're reading the story in light of where it's going. And that's what we're going to do with Joseph. And so if you don't know the Joseph story, I'm sorry, um, he saves everybody. We'll just, we'll just end it there. But um, Joseph becomes the second in command in all of Egypt. And Joseph has been blessed by God to be able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and to know that disaster is coming, that famine is coming. And in his wisdom, Joseph crafts a plan to save for the future. And he does. Now, what I haven't mentioned is that Joseph was in Egypt in the first place because his brothers were jealous and hated him and sold him into slavery and bondage into Egypt. And so he goes there, he he becomes second in command, and on top of that, he saves everybody, including his brothers. And his brothers come and they're in need, their family is in need, and he is able, because of the wisdom that God has given him, 
and the grace and the faithfulness that God has shown him to provide for his family. And at the end, when his father Jacob has died, his brothers realize we need, we need to seek his forgiveness. And so they go to Joseph. And they're seeking out his forgiveness. And Joseph makes this statement, which in the end becomes the theme for all of Genesis. But certainly is what we're going to see throughout this story. Because we're going we're to have to work at this story in segments. Right? It's 13 chapters long. I, I can't... I can barely get through one chapter in 45 minutes to an hour. 13 chapters is just not doable. And so we're going to have to break this story up. And so we're going to need to look at this every week. We're going to need to remind ourselves of the story as a whole and of the end. And this becomes the, the whole message of Joseph's story because his brothers come, they're begging forgiveness, they've plotted to murder him, they've thrown him in a pit, they've thrown him into slavery. While in slavery, he's been falsely accused and ended in in prison. Things have not gone well for Joe. And nonetheless, here he is at the end of it, and he's able, by the wisdom and the grace of God, to make this statement, and it's Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, he says in the next verse, I will provide for you and your little ones. So we get this theme. Joseph understands it. What we're meant to understand, Joseph becomes the character that just tells us. He says, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. Another way of saying it is what man, what people meant for evil, God intended for good. And so when you read the story of Joseph with the end in mind, certain things happen. You get perspective. You begin to see the three purposes of the story of Joseph. And and not just the three purposes of the story of Joseph, but of all of Scripture. And all of the Old Testament, and, and whenever you read narrative, you see these three points, but we're going to look at them in Joseph's saga. And the three things are this. Joseph's story points us to God. That is to say that we see in Joseph and his family two stories. We see the story of a family that is conflicted and confused, full of love and favoritism and jealousy and scandal and deceit and pride, malice, forgiveness. We know this story. This is all of our families. So we see that story, but but beneath that story is another story. It's a truer story. It's God's story. And it's the story where God ordains all things, both good and evil, in order to accomplish his redemptive purposes. It's the story of God redeeming for himself a people. And Joseph recognizes this. And he tells it to his brothers, and he tells it to us. Your story the story you thought you were writing, the story that everyone tells you, and, and it's great to preach this graduation week because that's what you hear. Your life 
is an empty page that men will want to write on, to write on, um, maybe not. But the point is you're writing your own story. Go, make it good. Don't make it a short story. Don't make it a boring novel. Make it, a, make it an epic. Write your own story. And, and, and some of you think, some of us think we're writing it with all of our best and worst intentions. But that story, the story of your life, is really written by God. And it's unfolding before you. And you're participating in it. And your life and your days and your salvation, all of history in fact, belongs not to you but to God. And that's a great thing. Because if your destiny had to be written by you, you'd be in great trouble. And so we can look at the Joseph saga, and we can see that Joseph points us to God. It's about God. But not only that, Joseph's story points us to Jesus. And that is to say, the moral is not be like Joseph. It's, that's not the point. The point is, there is one who is coming, and for us, there is one who came And he was like Joseph, except greater in every way. He was rejected and despised by his own. He was loved dearly by his father. And the very people that sold him into death are the ones that he died and then was raised again to save. And and so we see with Joseph, there's this descension into a pit. He's sold into slavery. He he, in essence, rises from the dead. He's resurrected to his, his family and his father. And he saves them. He saves them. That's not us. That's Jesus. And so we see that in every way that Joseph was obedient, Jesus is the most obedient. In every way that Joseph was faithful, Jesus is the most faithful. In every way that Joseph is forgiving, Jesus is most forgiving. And in so much as Joseph brings temporary salvation, and I say temporary because, yeah, they got to eat, but eventually what happened? They died. He saved them from death for a little while, temporary salvation. And in as much as Joseph temporarily saved his family, Jesus eternally saves all those who are in him. The story of Joseph is meant to point us to Jesus. In other words, Jesus is our great and glorious Joseph. So when you read good things about Joseph, before you say, I need to dream big dreams, or I need to be forgiving, or I need to be so willing to flee temptation that I leave my cloak, before you say those things, and no, I'm saying, not saying don't say those things, But before you do, know that Jesus did it perfectly for you. And so this is in order now. Joseph points us to God first. Then he points us to Jesus. And then finally he points us to ourselves. And that is to say that we are reminded of our redemption through Joseph's story. We're reminded that in fact we're Reuben or Simeon or Gad or Judah not Joseph. But then also, we're reminded of how that redemption empowers us 
to actively live faithful lives like Joseph did. Now we can look and now we can say that we ought to be faithful in the face of adversity because of what Jesus has done for us. Because Jesus was faithful in the face of adversity. We ought to be resolute when we face temptation. And we can be because of what Jesus did. We ought to be wise when we face crisis. We ought to be forgiving when we face hurt and grief. And we can. Not because of our own strength. Not because we're faithful like Joseph, but because Jesus was faithful like Joseph and he gives us his spirit. And that empowers us to live Christ-like lives. And so do you see it's both? But really what's, it, what's, what's the issue here is the order. If you come to the text and you say, I'm going to be like Joseph. First of all, when you start telling people about how great God's dream that he's given for you is and how he's going to make you, he's going to make you higher, you're going to alienate a lot of people. Right? We're going to see that in a little bit. That didn't go so well for Joseph. Right? And when you say that in the face of temptation, I'm going to flee to the point of leaving my cloak. Well, what happens when you don't? Because you've got Adam in there too. You've got Adam and Jesus living in you. And all of us know every day we fight temptation. We fight, we fight, we fight, and sometimes we fail. And if you're thinking, man, I have to be like Joseph. You're going to face guilt, discouragement, disappointment, maybe even to the point of questioning whether or not you're a believer. Why? Because you've made something that's meant to point us to the faithfulness of Jesus another way of guilting you into living legalist, moralistic lives. You cannot be your own righteousness. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ is. Jesus is Joseph. And we get to share in that. And so as we read this story, keep those points in mind. Uh, Next week, you won't see these up. Bert is going to be preaching. I'm really excited about it. And and, And Genesis has these weird ways of... Starting a story and then before they bring it to fruition, interrupting it with a seemingly random story that ends up having huge ramifications for redemptive history. I'll let Bert unpack that later. You're welcome. Um, but, and then jumping right back to the story. But after that, you're going to see these points because we have to be reminded every single time, every single time that we are not the center of our story. We're not the author of our story. God is, and we ought to be thankful for that. We ought to be thankful for God who authors our story. We ought to be thankful for Jesus who authors and perfects our faith and who empowers us by the, by the Spirit. And then all of a sudden, there's this weird thing that's happening. And this is just a bit of an aside. But as you say it, you ought to hear it. God the Father sovereignly ordains our lives. God the Son is our righteousness, the righteousness that we could not be. And then in 
endows us with his righteousness upon his death, burial, resurrection, and when he gives us God the Spirit to empower us to live faithful lives. Do you see how the whole Trinity, how God is just intimately connected in every facet of your life? God loves you. And he has devoted himself in some ways fully. When I say that, I mean every person of the Trinity, every aspect of God is integral and utterly necessary for your salvation. So we have to thank him. And so with that in mind, this is the God who writes our story. And we're, we're going to look at Genesis 37, but it's not the end of the story. And it's going to feel more like we're just drawing out points. And, and if I didn't say this before, I'll say it now. If I said it before, I'll repeat it. It's going to feel a lot more like an introductory sermon to, to the Joseph saga. Because there are just things that we need to see, but we need to see it in the context that we just talked about. Um, and so with that in mind, I'm going to pray, and we're going to just start reading through, through chapter 37. We'll make some points, and at the end, hopefully, we'll begin to see how through Joseph we see the great faithfulness of Jesus. We'll be able in faith to believe. So let's pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us this morning. You delight in being behind the scenes and pointing us to Jesus. So Holy Spirit, point us to Jesus. Help us to believe. Help us through the preaching of your word, through the power of your work, to confess this morning that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, for God's glory, for our good and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, in chapter 37 of Genesis, and and even before we read verse 2, which is on the screen, I want to point out that we skipped chapter 36. And I don't think that skipping things is okay, but uh, I'm going to briefly take you through the entirety of chapter 36 in two sentences. Genesis 36 shows us that Esau's family is both great and enters into the land that they were to inherit and the blessing that they were to inherit in its fullness. So we're meant to read Genesis 36 and then read the first verse of Genesis 37, which says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And we're supposed to realize that Esau's descendants have met their reward and have had it in full. And that Jacob's descendants are still in a land of wandering in a land that's not fully yet their possession. And they have not received their reward. That's Genesis 36. 
And so for us, a conclusion that we can draw, something that we need to remember, is that Esau's family in 36 had their possession. Jacob's family did not. They were still awaiting the fullness of the promise. For us as believers, one thing you can know is that we have the promise in Christ already, but not yet in its fullness. That means that if you have the fullness of of your blessing and your inheritance and your reward on earth, then you ought to be worried. You ought to be concerned. As Christians, we will not have the fullness of the promise. We cannot have God's final and authoritative promise now until Jesus returns. We have all the blessings, all the markings of it in Jesus, in his spirit. We are promised it. We have it to some degree already, but not yet fully. And so we must not be like Esau's descendants in that we must not be satisfied with the blessings of this world. But rather, we look like Jacob's descendants, wandering in the land of our father's sojournings, waiting for the day when God returns, when Jesus returns, and brings to us the fullness of his blessing. Now here's what's interesting, is that for Jacob and his family, it was there. That's where God had called them to be, but they didn't fully possess it yet. And for us, it's the same thing. And I don't want to go terribly much into eschatology it's, it's, or into the end times. Um, it's, it's, it's not the point of this. But I do want to say this, that God is redeeming the earth. Jesus says, I'm making all things new. Not all new things. And so for us, we eagerly await the day when the sons of God are revealed, just like the earth does. It moans and groans for it. That's what Romans 8 tells us. We eagerly await that day when God restores the earth, when he casts out the enemy and he makes all things right. That will be a great day. And so we find ourselves in a similar place. First uh, Peter 1 says it like this, you are the exiled elect of the dispersion. So what Peter is saying is that just like when the Israelites later, not in Genesis, but later, they get spread out throughout the earth, they lose their land, um, Israel, Judea, they fall, they're exiles in the same way that they're exiles in a land that's not their own, and yet at the same time, children of the promise, so we who are in Christ are in a land that's not our own. And so what I'm saying is, lay roots down, but not too deep. Store your treasures in heaven. That's another way of saying that. And so let's continue on. Genesis 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. When he was, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them of them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him 
and could not speak peacefully to him. Let me just stop right here and let's talk a little bit about family dynamics. Because we see a lot of not great stuff here in the family that will become Jesus' ancestors. So the first thing I want to say, parents, especially fathers, be careful the legacy you leave for your children. The Bible talks about how the sins of the father go to the 10th generation. The sins of the father. Why is that important here? Because we see (laughs) that Jacob, like his father Isaac, like his father Abraham, had favorites. Don't pick favorites. It's been said before. From this pulpit, not by me, from David, I want to say. But be careful not to show regard to one of your children over and at the expense of the others. It doesn't go well. Isaac did it. And and Jacob seems to have forgotten how Esau responded to that. And so now here, in every way, Jacob is just picking up where Abraham and Isaac left off. He's in the land of his father's sojournings. He's doing the same foolish things with his family. You see, he's got multiple wives. The Bible never says outright that polygamy is bad, but what it does do is show every case where a marriage is not between one man and one woman does not end well. And so we can see the truth of the Bible. We can see the truth of that statement in this. He's got many wives. He's picking favorites. His family is in disarray. To the point that most of his children hate Joseph. I say most because we don't know about the the girls. But the brothers hate him. And they could not speak peacefully to him. So moving on to verse 5. Joseph had a dream. And we told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field... And behold, my sheave arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheave. His brother said to them, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Um, When I was growing up and, and thought about this story, Joseph always seemed like a little boy. In, in fact, there was like this, there was this cartoon called Superbook. I don't know if any of you have heard of Superbook. It was really weird. I, I don't know that I recommend it to you, but it was, it was like it told Bible stories. And there was this little boy and this little girl and this boy's robot. And they would like travel to Bible times and, and the robot could then talk. And he's like, beep, boop, boop, that's Joseph, you know. And, and the kids were with him and they'd get to experience in real life these Bible stories. And it was weird even then to me. And I guess it's just growing up on like sci-fi and nerd stuff. They would interact with characters, which seems like it would change the story, but it never did. And, and they showed Joseph. They did the story of Joseph. And he's just this little boy. 
right? He seems like he's like 10. And so he tells the dream, and you're thinking, oh, this is just the kid telling his dream. Why are his brothers getting so mad at him? But in the text, he's not a little boy. He's 17. And let me tell you something. 17-year-old siblings know exactly what they're doing. He's not like, oh, by the way, I had this weird dream. What do you guys think about it? My sheaths were bigger than your sheaths. It's not that. Oh, why are you mad? How could this be? Right? Parents of 17-year-olds, parents with siblings, are you buying that? Are you buying that Joseph just had no idea? Oh, I didn't know it would make you mad. I was just telling you, it's so interesting. You just don't see grain doing that, you know? All of your grain bowing to mine, that never happens. Just not funny to anyone but me. Weird. Um, no, he's, he knows what he's doing. He's the favorite. Not only of his father now, but seemingly of God. I mean, God gives him this dream. That's how we would have seen it. He wants to rub it in a little bit. Don't do that. (laughs) Look, God does give people visions and dreams, and, and God may even have put something on your heart and done it this way, that he's given you a passion for something, and he's revealed to you that this is what he's called you to. And when the dreams that you have align with what God has planned, they're certain. I don't want to talk about how you know that, but, but when the dreams God has given you align with the plans that he's made for you, they're certain. And God has planned big things for us, but our job is not to use the blessing of God as a means for beating down or irritating or showing your favor to other people in such a way that degrades them. You don't think we do it, but we do all the time. We tend to do it with things like theology. You're going to say, that seems weird. But you may not realize this. Um, Theology is a gift from God. When I say theology, I mean knowledge of who God is and and knowledge of the scriptures and being able to understand and, and rightly discern God's text. That's a gift from God. You, in your natural state, could not even read the word of God and see him. However, God graciously gives you his spirit so that you can. And then what we do in turn is say, well, look at what God has shown me. Boy, you're dumb. How did you not see this? We use the blessing of God. We use the gift of God. It's a weapon. Don't do that. Note, I'm preaching to myself here. So Joseph has this dream. He tells it to his brothers. They hate him even more. So then he dreams another dream, verse 9, and told it to his brothers. All right, so now the first time, maybe that's an accident. Maybe he didn't know. If you can buy that. Um, But the second time, the second time, Joseph's not foolish. And so he tells it to them again. Behold, I dreamed another dream. And then they're, oh, great, good. Tell us. (laughs) We're so excited. Behold, the sun, the moon, 
and 11 stars were all bowing down to me. It's not even veiled anymore, right? It's not his grain and other grains. It's him. Hey, the sun and the moon, mom, dad, you're listening, and 11 stars, huh, how many brothers do I have? Eh, it's not significant. They were all bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his, to his brothers, his father rebuked him this time and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And so now here we have a father misstepping again. Because Jacob now is only interested in the dream because he's been involved in it. He was comfortable with a dream where all the brother's sheaths were bowing down to Joseph. He was comfortable with the tension that that brought into his family. But now that, hey, the son is bowing down to you? Ah, uh, what? Is, no, he, he, he rebukes him. He scolds him. He's only concerned about himself. It's missing the point of fathering. And it continues to the fact that his, his brothers were jealous of him. And what needed to happen was there needed to be a family sit down. And Jacob, as the father, as the pastor of the family, as the head of the home, needed to say, look, there's tension between you. So the first thing I want to do is ask for your forgiveness. Because I have loved Joseph more. And I've shown him favor more. doesn't do that he keeps the dream in mind he says he sees all these things he remains silent fathers we have to be active in the workings of our family we have to and so joseph now has had these dreams his family sees it or hears it i should say he's happy to tell them and they're angry. And so now we have this family that's full of tension and bitterness. Murderous tension and bitterness. And again, Jacob should have known this better than anyone. Because Esau wanted him dead. He had to literally flee from Esau. And then when he was coming back to where Esau might be, he had to make all this provision so that Esau would be okay with seeing him again. He was terrified of Esau. He doesn't even recognize it in his own family. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing their flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I have heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. 
They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So now we have these brothers who are conspiring to kill Joseph. And Reuben steps up, and at first it seems like he's noble. No, don't kill him. Then we see the, the, the truth, the, the state of his heart. He says, throw him into the pit. What Reuben is thinking is that his brothers will throw Joseph into a pit. They'll return and either say, hey, we never saw him, or they'll say he is probably dead. Then Reuben will sneak out at some point and get Joseph and bring him back and say, Father, I found Joseph, your favorite, love me. He wants the love of his father. Children will do tremendous things to feel and receive the love of their father, both good and bad. So again, fathers, and it feels like I'm just picking on us. Kind of am. Don't just love your children. Right? That's, that's, it's almost not enough. Love them in a way that they know it. In ways that they feel it. And do it before it's too late. Tangibly Show and express to your children that you love them. It is amazing how far that will go. And I can speak as one who didn't have that. And and I know that in spite of all the things as a kid that I said or did um, with regards to my father, as much as I wanted to pretend like it it didn't shape me or hurt me, uh, to not have a father present, um, which in many ways we have present fathers who are absent, to not have a father present actively loving me, shaped negatively, So much of my life. Now God is gracious. And he saved me and he redeemed me anyway. And your failures, our failures, are not such that they overwhelm God. However, how much greater your blessing when you're in good standing with your kids. When you love them and they know it even when they're fighting with you, even when they're rebelling against you, they know somewhere in there that that my dad loves me. And at the end of the day, I can come back to him. It's not to be taken for granted. 
or lightly. I didn't intend this to become a father sermon, but it kind of has. Fathers, love your children well. Make sure they know it. I'll give you practical ways to do that, but it's going to be unique to each of your kids. So you're going to have to learn your kids. You're going to have to invest in them as much as you invest in the workplace or as much as you invest in your favorite TV show or book or as much as you invest in yourself. And again, I'm preaching to myself. So, verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. If you remember, we said this is meant to point us to God first and then to Jesus. I want you to hear the shocking similarities to the life of Jesus that we see here. Joseph, his intentions were not necessarily good. Jesus were, but Joseph brings to his brother the truth of God and they reject and despise him for it. They strip him so they think of his glory. Right? They take that robe of many colors that his father gave him. They strip him of that glory and they throw him into a pit. In essence, to leave him to die. And Jesus comes and he preaches the words of God and his family, his own family, hates him for it. And they strip him of his dignity. The Bible says they beat him to the point where you can't even tell he's a man. Right? That is the most extreme version of taking away his robe of many colors. They kill him. They throw him in a tomb. He descends into Sheol, into the pit of death. They threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Verse 25 Then they sat down to eat. (laughs) I don't even understand how they can do that. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Right, and so now again, we're seeing these shocking similarities. Joseph's brothers are too afraid to do it themselves, so they say we're going to make a profit off of him. They sell him to people who are not his family, to people who are not his own. Right? Jesus is sold, sold over, given over to the Romans, and Joseph is given over to the Egyptians. 
And when Reuben returned to the pit, verse 29, and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? My plan is ruined. He doesn't really care about Joseph. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Joseph tore his gar- or Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So now Jacob finds out or believes now that his son is dead. Um, and he handles it like a father would. He tears his garments. He mourns. He wants nothing to do with anyone else. And part of you, part of me wants to say, no, 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 you've got a family. In your loss, you still have to be their father. And part of me just knows that grief is such a thing. It's such a thing that you cannot, cannot give an instruction like that. Jacob, in his statement, <laughs> if you think this is a stretch, Maybe so, but not too much. He turns his back on the rest of his family. Um, And and I can't help but think of the darkness that comes when God in his mourning, the loss of his son, turns away. Light is gone. It's darkness. The father is grieving the death of the son. And it would seem horrible if we stopped there We're going to have to stop there. But that's why we started with the beginning of the story. Jacob's not dead. Jacob is salvation for his people. Jesus is not dead. He's salvation for his people. It's about Jesus. And this is how it starts with Jesus. But it's also about ourselves. So here's something we're going to have to know. And this is where I'm going to leave you. We want to be like Jacob. We want dreams from God that are big and will prosper us. We want positions of power where we can use our power for good and wisdom. We want influence. We want the strength to be able to resist temptation. We want the wisdom and discernment to be able to interpret dreams. But what we don't realize is the only way Joseph gets there is through the rejection of his family, through being tossed in a well, in a, in a pit, and being sold into slavery. It's through suffering. Later on, false witness is born against him. He's thrown into jail. It's through suffering. We want crowns, but we don't want the cross. We want the glory, but we don't want the suffering.
in Scripture tells us that's not how it works. Romans 8, 12 through 17 tells us that's not how it works. And I'm going to read this to you. And the reason that I'm reading this to you is because some of you right now are in the midst of suffering. In the midst of hurt. And you can feel like, it's easy to feel like God has forsaken you. But he's not. This is how he demonstrates his love for you. He grieves with you. We will not trivialize your hurt. We will not trivialize your suffering. We will say this, it is forging for you a great weight of glory. That's what scripture tells us. And listen to what Paul tells us in Romans verse 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. All right? And so there's the glory we're talking about. The Spirit has sealed in you and promised for you that you are heirs with Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He finishes his sentence and he says this, provided... It's a conditional term. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, no death, no resurrection. No suffering, no glory. No pain, no inheritance. If you are in Christ, you will meet suffering, you will meet grief. But God has planned it for good. In the midst of grief, it does not look that way. In the midst of suffering, it does not feel that way. But in the same way that Christ endured the cross, and God gave him the name which is above every other name, So you who are in Christ, as you suffer well, will be glorified with him. It's our hope. It's the hope of Joseph. It's the hope of all who believe in Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that there was no haughtiness about him. There's no malice in his heart. That in every way that Joseph was good, he was perfect. And in every way that Joseph was not, he was perfect. That as we trust in him, we who were his family, the ones who sold him into death and slavery with our sin, God, that we now can reap the reward of his inheritance because of his resurrection and the power of his spirit. Help us to live in light of that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please stand for the benediction.
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may bound in hope. Go in peace.